Welcome back to Africa is a Country Talk. My name is William Shockey, and you are listening to Africa is a Country's weekly talk and interview show where we engage current affairs from an African perspective as well as from a left perspective. If you missed our episode last week, it was a great one. We chatted to Carl Kluter, who is the former Deputy Secretary General of the National Union of Metal Workers South Africa. And we spoke to him about the future of South Africa's labor movement, as well as how he got involved in the trade union movement and how the labor movement as a whole has to position itself against a restructuring global capitalism that has resulted in the decomposition of the working class all over the world. You can find that episode on whichever podcasting platform you use. Please subscribe as well as review and feedback our show and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and most importantly, check out africasacountry.com for new writing on politics and culture on the African continent. So, On today's program, we're going to be addressing a very important issue, and it's somewhat of a very confounding issue. Now, if you've been paying attention to what's been happening in Africa, particularly in Central and West Africa, you would have noticed that in the past 18 months, in similar scenes, military leaders have overthrown the governments of Mali, Chad, Guinea, Sudan, and now Burkina Faso. On Monday, the 24th of January, a soldier surrounded by a dozen armed troops said on national TV to the Burkina Faso people that they had detained President Rochmark, Christian Kobore, suspended the constitution, dissolved the government as well as parliament, and closed the country's borders. Now, everyone has been trying to make sense of why this coup happened, and it's important to note that the coups which have been happening regularly on the continent have largely been confined to the Sahel region. The Sahel is below the Sahara and it extends from Senegal to the Sudan and includes Mauritania, Mali, Burkina Faso, Niger, Northern Nigeria, as well as Chad. But the most troublesome part of the region, which has been immersed in conflict since 2012, has been particularly on its central regions, what is known as the tri-border region, which is the shared border between Mali, Burkina Faso, and Niger. Now, a lot of that context, I'm sure, will be important when it comes to grappling with why and how this coup happened in Burkina Faso, but I'm sure it's not all of the story. So joining us on the program to help us make sense of what exactly the full story is, is Dr. Lasan Widrago, who holds a PhD in media arts and and studies, as well as a Master's of International Studies from Ohio University in the United States. He's an analyst analyst of political governance, media, and conflict in Sahelian West Africa. Lasan is a Fulbright alumni and a 2020, 20, a 2020 rather, AIC inaugural fellow. He currently works as an adjunct lecturer at Université Joseph Kizerbo in Burkina Faso. So, Dr. Widrago, this is your second time on the show. We had you towards the end of last year to talk about Thomas Sankara's trial. Out of curiosity, when you came onto the program last year and Burkina Faso was already in the midst of something of a political crisis, could you, could you then have foreseen the events which have now taken place? Uh, things went really, really fast. Uh, we did not really expect this to happen, but most analysts could... Uh, um, have been warning the president that he and his government are on to a path that is leading us to nowhere, especially when things are going really, really bad on, in terms of security and nothing is being done and nothing is being really done. Uh, we have seen what happened in Inata, where 49 uh, military gendarmes were killed alongside with uh, for civilians. And uh, less than a month after that, one of the figures of the civilian figures of the fight against uh, fundamentalists in the North, Elijah Yoro was killed in a very, very disturbing manner. And uh, the entire nation was uh, on the knees uh, mourning this single man who was killed. Um, it's difficult to foresee what was happening, but at the same time, the signs were very visible that that we still had hope that President Kabore would do something about it. But 
up to today, he kept changing the men. He changed the military leadership, but nothing more than that. The men are changed, but on the ground, nothing is being done. Why, why had an impatience grown against Kabore? Because he was recently elected to his second term. So one would have maybe ordinarily expected that the populace would have been much more willing to give him another shot. Uh, but uh, the coup, obviously we're talking about a coup, so it's not as if something that is in its structure democratic, but something I think you're alluding to is that the coup so far has, at least from an outside vantage point, received popular support, or, or maybe that's not the best way to put it, but uh, people are grateful that Kabore is gone. Not necessarily that they're happy for whoever comes in next, but uh, having just selected him, the impatience had grown so insurmountable that everyone he is happy that he's he's left so soon after he he came back. Why why is that the case? To really understand uh, how the Kabori ending end is really bar, we have to recall that back in 2015, the man was elected with 55, he received 53% of the votes and he was elected in the first civilian government after uh, the revolution of 2014, which overthrew President Kompaori. And then we had a coup, we had a coup that was led by uh, General Jinjiri and the Burkina Bay were on the street and quickly Jinjiri was put to jail and then we were able to organize elections and Kabore won the elections. And five years later, 2020 is winning the second term again with 57% first round. So a year into that, he's deposited in a coup and nobody is complaining. A lot of people actually went to the street to, to, to applaud. And uh, what the international media is covering is actually uh, what is happening here. I feel like they're not even going deep into it to see that people are applauding. And most people I talk to are saying, why did it even last to now? Why didn't, it, why didn't we have a coup um, maybe six months into his second term. So it's, it's, it's really sad what happened to him, but uh, uh, what is going on on the ground here is that people are in support, people are in full support of what is going on. And uh, you might be wondering, how can we go from uh, a popularly uh, supported government to um, a military leadership and nobody in this Burkina where we fought to kick out a strong military government. Why are we not fighting? Um, perhaps you need to organize a transitional government quickly and give the power back to the people. We're not doing that. I have not seen anybody on the street, even the opposition have not supported uh, have not gone against um, uh, this coup. And uh, even um, uh, political parties which were affiliated with uh, the MPP, the Kabori party, have gone out to say they are in support of the military coup. So, so what's interesting about Kabore is that he, if, if my recollection serves me well, he was the first leader of Burkina Faso who was elected on a popular ticket that had no former affiliation or, or ties to the military. And that makes me think of, of something we were, we were discussing the last time you were on the program, which is to what extent has, or is Burkina Faso kind of constantly haunted by its, its streak of, of military coups? So uh, the extent to which it's now become the mainstay of Burkina Faso politics, that the way to change power or the way to change systems is through military overthrow rather than 
rather than through uh, electoralism. Uh, I think I'm asking the question in an oversimplistic way, but I think you'll you'll see where I'm I'm going with this. Well, uh, y- yes, uh, I think you your question is really really uh, right here, and it's very profound because this is a country that has a history of military coups, a country that had a dictator hold power and maintain it for 27 years. And this is a country that kicked out that dictator and organized a transition and elected a civilian president for the first time in many, many, many years, right? And this civilian goes on, Mr. Kabori, to win a second term in 2020 with 57% of the votes. And uh, a year later, this same civilian leader is overthrown by a military coup and the people of Burkina Faso are in full support of the coup. So basically this goes on to explain that we are choosing the lesser of two evils. By that I mean, we are in this trajectory of going back to military leadership choosing that over a civilian elected leader, simply because this civilian had failed drastically to meet the expectation, the basic expectations of uh, the people of Burkina Faso, which is the security issue in the country. From 2015 or 2014 actually to now, we have at least according to official records, 2,000 people killed through violent extremist uh, um, attacks. And we have 1.5 million internally displaced people. And uh, the the last months of uh, 2021 have shown a lot of, uh, of, uh, uh, of, uh, we will be losing ground basically and Burkina Faso is reduced to Ouagadougou, the capital city, and Bougou the second largest city. And even in between, you cannot travel safely anymore. So this goes on to say that uh, the president has failed drastically so much that people are wondering, why did the military wait till now to take over? Why couldn't they take over earlier, sooner? And, and thinking about security, I, I want to... Okay, there's, there's two parts to this. The first part is, to what extent is, is this, is the position which the, the military coup leaders, that is, to what extent is the position that they now occupy something of a poisoned chalice? Because just in the way you've described it, the nature of the conflict, the extent of territory that has been seized by insurgents, the fact that Burkina Faso is now, at least in its sort of, uh, I guess, commercial administrative functioning has been consigned to two, to two cities. To what extent is that now a, a poison chalice insofar as the problems seem to be of a scale that goes beyond any particular leader or any particular regime? Uh, in terms of fixing it. So what's to say that uh, in terms of the way, um, in terms of the way people are assessing what happens from here, what gives people the hope that whatever comes now will be better than Kabore, if that is indeed a hope that is reflected uh, on the ground? Yes, on the ground here, uh, what I'm reading is that there's a, a clear paradigm shift when it comes to the overall popular vision of uh, security. Um, this could be understood by the civilian leaders in capacity to manage the conflict. One, one, one clear example of, of that is the, the last attack which killed 51 or 52 people, uh, 49 civilian and uh, 
actually 5349 military and uh, four civilians. These are military who was who was stationed in a remote area and for over a month they were calling for food they were calling for basic necessity for ammunition and nothing was being conveyed to them up to the day to the day when uh, the insurgents rounded them up and killed them all so this goes on to show how uh, management, the management of the military has, Skabori uh, had failed that. Because in his first uh, term, he had swore, sworn that he's not going to include any military in his government. He did not appoint any military, anyone with military background as a minister. Even the Ministry of uh, Defense was occupied by a civilian. But as things were going on and on, during his second term, he was compelled to actually appoint militaries in key positions. And he had to remove some of them and put younger guys. And that, that didn't help. That didn't help. The machine did not go anywhere. But I was talking about an overall paradigm shift in terms of uh, the popular vision of security in the Sahel, in Burkina, um, in Mali, in, in, in Niger, and even to some extent in uh, the coastal countries, there's this crystallized vision, mm. popular vision that uh, to head towards security, a safe um, governance system, we need to cut any ties with our former, uh, with our former colonial powers, France, and that has been clearly demonstrated when the convoy was, the French military convoy was uh, uh, going through Burkina to Niger and the convoy was, uh, um, there was a, a huge protest against the convoy for weeks and weeks. People were demanding to see what was in those uh, military uh, uh, vehicles. And uh, those were the symptoms of how deep, how deep uh, people on the ground here in Burkina Faso are demanding a redefinition of our relationships with our partners, our international partners. This situation seems more like a like a, a complo, complotism that is going on, but mm. at the same time, it's really, really real on the ground here. Mm. And International media, this has been framed as anti-French sentiment, but what people are demanding here in Burkina, in Mali, and you've seen the recent development in Mali, is that we cut the ties quickly with uh, um, our former colonial power, which is here, mm. and uh, move toward uh, new relationships, either with, uh, with Russia or maybe other new partners. To ask a question about about how things got here. And I'm gonna come back to, to probing more about this, this popular vision that seems to be cementing across the region. But before that, how did we get here? How did the, the region become mired in conflict in the first place? How did things escalate to the level that they're at now? Now, I know this is, a, is an answer that you know, could stretch back decades and decades if you wanna give uh, a complete explanation but maybe you could sort of give us the highlights, especially to, to 2012, which, which is when the, the, the civil war in Mali began. And I think probably the biggest vector for, for, for the entry of a lot of the insurgents, which are now uh, doing battle in the region. Could you just maybe walk us through that if you can? Absolutely. The Sahel had always been a very porous region where a lot of traffic is going through it from the coastal region, the west, the west here to all the way to Libya with the fall of Libya. I think it's, there's no easier way to really talk about the situation without bringing us all the way back to the fall of Libya mm. and how weapons were carried across the region and how uh, bandits who um, could uh, lay their hands quickly on those weapons, realize that actually they could uh, make a wealth. And uh, uh, with the fall of Libya, 
weapons did reach um, Burkina Faso, Mali, and uh, the entire Sahel region here. But that is a very simplistic way to understand it. One of the ways we need to look is the state, how the states manage, the, the different states manage that conflict. Mm. Oftentimes we don't criticize ourselves in our mismanagement of uh, little conflicts. Burkina Faso was engaged in multiple uh, peace negotiations. And during those peace negotiations, we were bringing the belligerents here in Ouagadougou. Some of them even have houses here. And some of them were fed and lodged by Burkina Faso so as to help uh, negotiate either for the release of uh, uh, people who were Westerners who were kidnapped or either uh, to bring back peace in Mali or Cordoba. The conflict in Cordoba is often um, factored out of this conflict, but at the same time, it's, it, it, it's still part of it. So um, the Compaore regime had really collaborated with all of these groups who were, who were intervening in Mali, even all the way to, to, to Chad. So when you bring them here and you involve, you get involved in the negotiation and you're not looking at your own borders, you're not seeing what is happening in the countryside. And to, an easier way to, to understand this is that we reduce our focus in terms of security and internal security to our major cities. Mm. You can literally grow from Mali to Niger through back, back roads and nobody will ever check you out. Nobody will check your ID. You could even leave somewhere in, 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 the, in the northern part of Burkina and grow old without ever having an ID. So the sense of belonging to a nation called Burkina Faso is a very, uh, is missing. For, for most people from the Sahel. And also we need to also talk about uh, distribution of goods and services. There was none, there's no roads, there's no schools, there's no, there's no nothing. So when these insurgencies came, it was very easy for them to take over. It was really easy for them to quickly uh, overthrow the, the local police station and take over. And you know, sometimes they didn't even have to put in a fight. They just have to show up and tell the police officers or the, the, the very representatives of the government that we don't want to see you here anymore. And they are gone. And for so long, the government, the central government in Ouagadougou had been warned several times. This is what is going on here. We did not take it seriously. We did not take the fundamentalist issue seriously all the way to 2015 when we had the attack in Ouagadougou. That's when we started being worried about what is going on in our backyard. Mm. So if I'm understanding you correctly, the way to understand Burkina Faso and its role in this conflict is that it, it has no dog in the fight, by which I mean that there are no sort of... Uh, organically developed Burkina Bear um, insurgents that are, are, are fighting some cause uh, in, in the same way, for example, uh, that in, in Mali, it's for, for, the, for the autonomy of the Azawad region. What happened in this instance was that there, were, there was conflict in surrounding areas and owing to the, the, the central state's neglect of the peripheral regions of Burkina Faso, primarily the countryside, uh, these conflicts were allowed to, to spill over with impunity and abandon. Absolutely. To some extent, uh, the insurgent groups, although we do have homegrown groups, um, people who are Burkina Bay and uh, from all the borders, from all the ethnic groups, and people at the beginning, they tended to reduce it to the Fulani, and, 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 but that's not true. We do have Mosi, Bobo, and many other ethnic groups among the insurgents who are Burkina Bay. 
So, but what is very interesting about uh, the insurgent groups in Burkina is that they're not really claiming any territory to govern. They're not mm. per se like um, occupying any zone and saying, this is our territory. We're gonna collect taxes here. We're gonna govern here. We're gonna govern through Sharia law. There hasn't been much about that. When they occupy a zone, when they arrive, the, the first enemies, the representatives of the government, of course, the police, um, um, any military, uh, even school teachers, they'll kick them out quickly or kill them or, you know, but beyond that, they have entered a new sort of a, a practice whereby they will burn the crops and kick the population out or they will come and give them a warning tell them we want you gone in five days and believe me those people are calling in Ouagadougou and telling the Kabore government we have received the message asking us to leave in five days but nothing is being done and in three days the insurgents will come back and to verify and see if people have left that's why we now have millions of internally displaced people. How did how did Burkina Faso become so geographically divided such that a huge swath of the population is basically illegible to the state? And as you're describing here, no matter how desperate their conditions are, no matter how frightful their conditions are, those pleas aren't reaching uh, the central government. How did how did that kind of political economy uh, of of state involvement uh, emerge? Um, again, the Kabore and uh, his successive government have initially downplayed the crisis uh, when asked about. Um, certain isolated places, he would respond that, you know what, I do have intelligence coming from those areas and the situation is not as dire as you and other media want to make us believe. I think that was the, the first mistake he did. And uh, the second is, even when he realized that things are really bad, he was unable to coordinate the military and have them have an efficient reaction on the ground, simply because our military is also divided. And that's one thing that we don't talk much about uh, because under, under Compaore, the military was reorganized in a way that it's a military, it's a force that allows the president to maintain power. It is not a, a force that can fight and push back uh, an enemy, and you see that through the structure of the, the the military, who can command who, and who reports to who. So, I'm not a military strategist, but if you look quickly at uh, the three major military regions, or you look at the generals of the army. They have so many, many, many. We have many generals who have not, not earned the title of general on the ground. They are generals of offices. They don't go on the ground. They don't fight. Mm. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think the military has become fragmented in this way? So uh, uh, basically, under the long reign of uh, President Compaore, you had elite military with the best of the best equipment stopped here in Ouagadougou and those are people who are just there to protect the president. So mm. when Compaore was kicked out, that group which was also providing the intelligence was dismantled. The new government did not maintain them and most people in Burkina did not want that unit to be maintained. So when Kabore came to power, he did not want to compose the, the military. He quickly um, uh, appointed new leaders, including the very one who deposited him in uh, this January. Mm. 
he quickly appointed younger guys and putting them into positions of uh, responsibility and retiring the, the older guys or sending them to offices in Wagadugu here. Mm. So, and again, um, he did not want to compose uh, with the military in terms of appointing them in the government. He was very clear that he, his tenure was to mark the end of the military reign in this country. And uh, if you look at his own close guard, those are police officers, the gendarmes. And, and, and this goes on to show that when it's, in terms of military equipment, you can have your camp, you, have, you can have your, uh, your unit, but you might not have the heavy weapons. Mm. The heavy weapons are guard, guarded by uh, uh, the police. And one of the claims that we heard over and over and over is the, even the ones on the ground who are doing the fight, they didn't have the right weapons. Initially, mm. they didn't have motorcycles. We had to complain over and over for the government to provide them with motorcycles, which is, by the way, the, the vehicle the, the, that uh, the, the insurgents are using. So we're saying we need to equip them with a similar um, uh, vehicle so that they can move between the, the trees and go fight. So. Mm. Later on, when they got those, sometimes they will go and they won't even have ammunition mm. because they were afraid that if you provide them with the ammunition, you provide them with the heavy weaponry, they will do. They will come back in Waga and make a coup. I do recall. Yeah, I recall uh, last year that of, of all people, Macron had actually been criticizing uh, Kabore for for demobilizing, uh, undercapacitating, and devitalizing. The military. So it seems like in, in many ways he'd sowed the seeds of his own destruction by undermining maybe the most important function of the Pakinabe state. But I want to now ask a question about the military that is in charge now. And you'd spoken about this irony that Kabora had actually appointed the very person that deposed him. So I want to find out more about who this person is, who exactly is Lieutenant Colonel Paul-Henri Sandalgo Damiba. Uh, what I find interesting about him is, is that like a lot of coup leaders in the region, uh, as you say, uh, he's, he's very young, um, he's French educated, and he, he wrote a book about the, the conflict that he's, he's participating in the fight for. Uh, I think it was published this year and it's called West African Armies and Terrorism, Uncertain responses. So that's supposed to be providing an analysis of the anti-terror strategies in the region. So could you tell us more about who he is uh, as a figure, what we know about him so far, as well as how he and those around him are thinking about the immediate tasks that they have to do, uh, given that they now have, have power? Yeah, the Lieutenant Colonel uh, Damiba, uh, he actually, today he just released, uh, the, the military group just released a document that reinstitutes the constitution. So he wants to go by President Damiba now. From today on, I don't know how that's going to happen constitutionally. But <laughs> so, you're right, this is a 41 years old officer uh, trained in, in France. And uh, very aware about uh, the security issues, having fought uh, in the north of Burkina around since 2015. Um, he had been involved in the uh, underground um, anti-terrorism response uh, work, he and his men. And uh, in December of 2021, uh, Kabore promoted him and put him at the head of one of the, the most important military regions. I believe we have three military regions. So he was the commander of uh, one of the, the third one, which is one of the most important one in terms of a uh, um, number of men, but also in terms of weapons available to him. So 
Um, one very interesting thing about all of these younger military leaders today is that they are no longer the military leaders of the past who would follow orders only. This is a guy who is really, really involved in educating himself about what is happening and reflecting uh, a philosopher military, basically, um, uh, reflecting on uh, how um, the army has been responding to the fundamentalism or terrorism in the region. And based on his field experience and based on his uh, uh, research and training in France, he wrote this wonderful masterpiece, which was uh, later on uh, turned into a, a book, uh, which is now being circulated on WhatsApp, by the way, in Burkina here. So, can you send me a copy? I've been trying to look for one, and I can't find one. <laughs> I, I, I will. I will send it to you. Excellent. Um, so, he he is not really well known in Burkina, seriously, uh, until the coup, I had not heard his name popularly reported in media whatsoever at all. Very discreet. Um, if you Google him, you won't find a lot of pictures. Maybe pictures are beginning to emerge. Um, on the evening of the coup, I went online, and, um, but I couldn't find anything about him. Um, the political orientation that he is now trying to take, the first time he, they, 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 they announced the name of the movement, it was really scary because he's talking of a patriotic movement for the safeguard and restoration. And we were all wondering, what is he trying to restore? Is he going to bring back Kumpauri and uh, all the, the system that we fought? Or is he going to dig deeper and bring back something like a Sankarist sort of a revolution? What is he really trying to restore it here? Um, when he came out and uh, made an announcement and uh, talked about the reasons why they seized power. Quickly, we were all uh, in this, we were relieved basically to know that this is a guy who has something, who has something to offer. Mm. He might be close to what we, what he's gonna offer might be something close to what is going on in Mali in terms of uh, redefining the principles of the, the state, um, uh, redefining the priorities, and uh, redefining, actually maybe asking for more time to redefine the basis of uh, what a democratically led country is all about and moving mm -hmm. us away from uh, uh, what we have always had electing civilians and putting them because they gain the majority of the voices. Mm. So I'm curious about that. I'm curious about what you've just said, which is moving away from, from a conception of democracy, which is just about representative democracy, having elections every five years, one person, one vote, and whomever's elected is supposed to, to be sufficiently um, good enough to be able to reverse a country's fortunes. And I think that there's, there's, there's enough consensus that this is a very narrow conception of democracy. But how or in what directions, how, how are these leaders seeking to expand the conception of democracy? And how can we be sure that they're not just going to default to the almost classic political style uh, that has dominated post-colonial Africa, which is, uh, I, I, I smiled when you said he's almost like a philosophy military leader, because that's where my thoughts had started to go as well, which is that these, these coup leaders are almost styling themselves as these, as these enlightened leaders in much the same way that, that many African post-colonial leaders did, which which I think we, we can 
in hindsight say could be one of the reasons why we have such a democratic deficit on the continent that even the most well-meaning of of political leaders and that includes Sankara and Nerere and all of these giants to, to a certain extent almost kind of um, embraced uh, a conception of, of their political task where, where it was up to them, it was up to them to sort of, to, to steer the masses and, and up to them to, to, to only for some kind of ill-defined period to set up the, the basic foundation of the state before only after that period had elapsed can, can power and agency be bequeathed upon the masses once more. I mean, this is obviously a bit of a, of a, of a rush to judgment, but it's one of the reasons why I'm looking at this and it feels like we're, we're kind of replaying a pattern we've seen before. Well, uh, what is a little bit different from uh, um, the earlier military leaders is that today we have a strong civil society movement that they have to compose with. And uh, the civil society movement have worked so hard to earn a certain level of liberties that they're not going to let it uh, be drawn in the uh, crushed with the the boots of uh, the soldiers. So that being said, Damiba and his kinds understand that clearly that in Burkina, you cannot be you a military or wherever you're trained, you cannot come and take over and cultivate our liberties and we're gonna sit down and let you do that. That's not gonna happen. That for sure mm. is not gonna happen. And I understand, I think that's understanding that paradigm, that new sort of a, a, um, a, a power dynamic that he quickly reestablished the internet when Kabori was uh, in his last weeks mm. struggling to maintain a head, his head above the water uh, was cutting the internet, he was suspending Facebook and so when these guys came, they reestablished that quickly and they published some documents um, reassuring the people that, you know what, this is your basic freedom and we're not here to take it away from you. They understand that. And today, frankly, most people I have talked to are saying, what is the importance of elected, democratically elected civilians? What is the importance when I can no longer afford to buy food. The price of uh, grain has almost doubled in Burkina today, it turned to, from 2015, uh, 2015 to today, the prices have almost doubled. People in Ouagadougou cannot afford groceries. And for most people, that is what they're looking at. They are not interested in uh, a democracy a la Francaise, they're more interested in what is it that I can have for me and for my family? Can I feed my family? Can I afford rent? Can I um, afford to send my children to school? Can I even afford to have a school? A mm. lot of schools have closed in Burkina. I forgot the numbers, but this is a striking number of uh, schools who have been closed since, uh, since the crisis. So these militaries understand that there's an opportunity here to come to power because there's a strong anti sort of a um, Western oriented ways of leadership, Western democracy, uh, style of democracy. That's why they are opposed to not only France, but they are also opposed to ECOWAS. Mm. And uh, um, they are coming out here in Burkina and marching in support of the leaders in, 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 in Mali. That, that was before the coup. And uh, in the meantime, Kabore was in Ghana with ECOWAS condemning the, 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 the coup leaders in Mali and millions of people were on the street demonstrating and 
in support of the coup leaders in, in, in Mali. So mm. I think that our, our institutions, as we know them, our democratically established institutions have uh, given, have opened a pathway to allow the military to come back. And it's not discarded that we will see the same thing happening in Niger. It's mm. not excluded that the same thing might happen in Cote d'Ivoire, although Ouattara mm. uh, and uh, his folks, um, you know, are saying have done a tremendous work in improving the economy. It's not excluded that the same thing is going to happen in in Togo and and uh, Benin, for that matter. Mm. If and only if uh, Mali succeeds in the new trajectory that it is taking, especially bringing in new partners, bringing in the Russians, and uh, going head to head with, uh, with France. Today, they just kicked out uh, the French uh, ambassador in, in Mali. They have asked him to go. They gave him 72 hours to leave the country. And before that, they asked um, uh, the, 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 the Minister of Foreign Affairs had had a harsh response to, uh, to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from, Mali, uh, from, from France. So when you listen to the discourse, either from uh, the popular guys in the civil society movements or the opposition leaders, the discourse is no longer that discourse of like, okay, let's remove the tyrants and let's go toward elect, uh, elections where we can, uh, we can have a democratically elected leader. But it's, it's kind of like, oh, we need a strong man like the kind of a, uh, of a Kagame in, in Rwanda, or we need a strong man who can come back and uh, restore um, order. Because mm. frankly, a country like Burkina is in complete disorder on all the grounds. You go to the university system, it's a mess. You go to the minister, minister of interior, it's a mess. Land tenure is a major reason for crisis here, community crisis. So much that you go to smaller towns, the townships, the government is not touching that. You leave the township and you go beyond it and then you vibe, you, you, you sell that place for those who can afford to buy a plot, but you don't, you don't transform the, the township. You don't, you don't work toward changing it or no, 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 you're going, you're leaving it there and you are creating new towns. Mm. where you bring in electricity and water and telling them whoever can afford water, whoever can afford to buy a piece of land here, you can go. But nobody can afford it. The people cannot. So thinking about, about this paradigm shift that you're talking about and the social vision which is developing, by your description, there is a consensus across all of political society that Burkina Faso must go beyond the, the paradigm of seeking to hastily elect a civilian government once a vacuum of power opens up. And that is derived from a basic yearning for order. Because as you say, the real crisis for ordinary Burkina bears is the basic absence of the state in their lives. The state cannot fulfill any of its main functions chief of which is providing security and everything else flowing from that, education, healthcare, and so on. So when it comes to, to this process of reconstituting the Burkina Bess state, I'm interested in knowing more about the relationship between civil society and the political opposition, as well as the incumbent government and, and what plan, it's early days, but what plan does this government seem to be charting for how to bring these different social blocks together in order to, to chart this new path? Uh, because I think 
you know, the, the dilemmas that the, the erosion of the states is, is so thorough, as you've been describing for us in Burkina Faso, that if, if this paradigm shift and this new project isn't carefully pursued uh, and in such a way that I think kind of uh, is consultative and brings in everyone to the table, then, then Burkina Faso could just as easily slide back into disorder. You mentioned just now that this new generation of, of military officials and leaders are, are not people who, who simply take orders, which suggests that if there is any bit of discord when this program is being initiated, that the, the worst case scenario is just a, a kind of revolving door of different coups happening happening frequently uh, as different group, groups claim to, to be the ones who can restore order to, to society. So yeah, my question to you is, you know, bearing in mind this repudiation of, of, of Western style, particularly French style, liberal democracy, uh, what, what do you think this new reconstitution process is going to look like? And, and how can civil society play a role? Uh, for example, in the wake of this coup, what have groups like uh, Balai Citoyen been saying and, and how is civil society going to, to organize and mobilize itself in order to, to, to oversee this process, as far as you can tell? As far as I can say, um, this situation puts civil society groups and organization into a difficult, very difficult position. Number on one side, they want to defend the freedoms, they want to condemn um, an illegal um, seize of power, but at the same time, they want to celebrate a release from uh, an, a government that was just so incompetent that the basic things, the, 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 uh, the, they couldn't provide the very, very, very basic things to the people. And uh, we were actually slipping toward um, a, a really bad scenario where basic free freedoms could not be expressed anymore, whereby uh, you could not protest anytime there's a schedule uh, and you're asking for permission to protest, you're being told you cannot do it and the government is citing the insecurity situation. And in the last, um, in December, um, even early, early January, uh, the minister of uh, uh, who is, reports the government, uh, one of the, the ministers, he came out and said, the government does not have to explain to you why it shut down internet. We don't have anything to tell you about why we shut down internet. Put this, bear in mind that this is in your best interest and that's it. So, mm. This new situation is bringing, uh, is putting people like uh, uh, groups like Ballet Citoyen in a very uncomfortable situation. But at the same time, they also say, look, in 2014, we came out, we marched, we changed the regime and we fall back behind. And we said, we wanna give the power to civilians. We made sure we had a transition that lasted one year. Of course, unfortunately, we had a coup within that transition, but we're able to, to um, uh, stop that coup and maintain the transition until we organized elections. And we assured that we had a, a second election again, which was to some extent fair. But what happened? Where are we going with this? From 2015 to today, things are not improving in terms of security. Nothing is improving. Are we going to be able to maintain the same folks until 2025? We mm. protested. What he did is to change the man, but even the new men are not doing anything. So basically the, the only thing we didn't change was the president. And we cannot wait another four years to change him. So basically, the civil society organizations 
would have to redefine their priorities. And today, when we talk about civil society groups, I, I feel like uh, we are again losing uh, because that we don't we don't have the same sort of a commitment that we had back in 2014 2015 we have mm. new emerging civil society groups with new priorities with new interests we have civil society movements who are in support of the old regime that was was kicked out in 2014 we have new civil society organizations who are calling for, for, for France, for the collaboration with France to be stopped. We have new civil society movements who are, were simply demanding for Kabore to resign. And we had civil society, mature civil society organizations like Ballet Citoyen who were saying, let's be careful. We don't have to ask for the president to resign in this situation, but we have to force him to work. We have to be on his neck. We have to condemn any misdeeds. We have to protest. We have to, to heckle them so that they can work. So with this new uh, change, with the military back in command, um, most of them, most civil society organizations have said, we support you, but we want you to work toward restoring uh, the constitution because we cannot operate in isolation without our traditional partners, ECOWAS, uh, whether it's ECOWAS or the African Union or the European Union or France for that matter. So anytime these organizations are condemning the military uh, leaders they are condemning the everyday folks on the street mm. so the task at hand is going to be difficult because Burkina is also engaged in what we call uh, reconciliation reconciliation because um, since the departure of compowery things were not going well a lot of people were kicked out of the country and we're asking them to come back because among us, there's a lot of things going on. We need to reconcile among ourselves first. Because the Burkina who took up weapons, who have joined the, the, the terrorist groups, what do they want? Perhaps we need to, to negotiate. There were even talks about negotiation with them. Mm. And on the backdrop of that, we had the, the Sankara trial going on because a lot mm. of people are not happy about that crime and many other um, crimes that we need to, to know what happened. Who was behind the killing of Sankara and his men? Who was behind mm. the killing of uh, journalist Norbert Zongu? And who was behind the, the killing of Judge Nebier? And many, many, many key people who were killed between, um, uh, not only during the Kumpari regime, but even before that. So the national reconciliation uh, movement that was going on, of course, the trial was uh, suspended as well. Um, it's suspended again. But if the military tries to address all of those ongoing issues, mm. I don't think it's going to work. I don't think they will be able to, to provide the Bukinabe with the things that they need. So that's why I was talking about redefining the priorities in terms of uh, bringing back um, peace in the country or at least securing major zones of the country to allow the Burkina Bay to circulate easily. Mm. You, you were talking about reconciliation just now and it I think allows us to, to bring the conversation to a conclusion with a, a lighthearted question, but also kind of, Serious question, because as we've been discussing, Burkina Faso has experienced political instability for some time. It's experienced a dark and tragic past for which it is now trying to, to dig deep and to, to reconcile to its present. And it's confronting a, a different trajectory where it has to, 
to look beyond both on the one hand, a kind of narrow democracy, on the other hand, uh, kind of uh, autocracy and figure out how to, 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 to reconstitute the states, as you say. And it just so happens that as all of this is, is, is ongoing, uh, Bikina Faso has been performing really well in the African Cup of Nations and has been a bit of an underdog. Nobody foresaw that it would be Tunisia in the, in the semifinals. And sports is, is I think, often the kind of um, the go-to for, for reconciliation. You know, I live in South Africa and, and you know, sports is, is always how, when this country almost is always approaching a kind of powder keg, then, you know, we, or, or, or when it's, you know, in 1995, we won the Rugby World Cup just after we became democratic. 1996, we won the African Cup of Nations. Uh, in 2019, when things were looking really bad, we suddenly won the, the Rugby World Cup and, and everyone was, everyone's spirits were uplifted. So, I mean, right. just do you think that the, do you think that the country is now on the edge of its seat, just hoping for, for a, a, a surprise at the tournament? And do you think that uh, were, were Burkina Faso to go all the way that could, that could do something, something magical to boost national morale? Oh, absolutely. When uh, we played Niger, I was uh, downtown early in the morning to see uh, how people are preparing for the game. Uh, mm. The game uh, played, they played at 9 p.m. here or 7 p.m. local time. But believe me, from 8 a.m. to that game time, all the major streets of Burkina, you will see flags, you see people on the motorcycle, and it was so, I have never seen such a thing. So mm. at this point, the uh, stallions of Burkina Faso, uh, if for some reasons they don't win the next game and they were to come back here, we're still gonna meet them. We're gonna meet them at the airport. We're gonna celebrate all night. Um, even the, the, the day there was the coup, I think mm. Burkina won the game. Uh, I think it was the, the 24th, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think you would have played. Yeah, you played, I think you played Gabon on the 23rd. And he beat them on penalties, yeah. Yeah, that day, the celebration I've seen in Burkina, in Ouagadougou specifically, I have never seen this, frankly. Since I came to Burkina, I've never seen that. We, we are behind our team, and uh, um, if, um, uh, and some analysts here have said that actually we're not cheering for the team, we're cheering for the military. Uh, <laughs> Because you know, people wanted to, they wanted a reason to celebrate. Mm. They went to the military when, when the coup happened overnight, when the president was arrested, and we didn't know what was really going on. Hundreds of people rushed to the military coup, uh, to the to the military camp, and seeking information. And when uh, information infiltrated that, uh, that uh, the, the president was arrested, the military had to actually chase people away. They were celebrating already without even having the information that the president was arrested. Mm. But again, going back to the, to, the, to the victory against Tunisia, that night, the, the, the previous night, um, the military pushed the the, the, the curfew, which was five, uh, 8 p.m. to, no, 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. Mm. They put it, uh, they push it to midnight, from midnight to 5 a.m. But believe me, in my district here, at 2 a.m., people were drinking and celebrating. <laughs> and no military came to tell them to stop. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's a connection between uh, um, celebrating the victory of the stallions and also cheering for uh, a new change. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how this is gonna play out, but at this point, 
any victory, um, any uh, if 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 we magically we can, uh, but it's still possible if we can if we can win the game on Wednesday and uh, move to the finals. It will be amazing for for reconciling the Burkina because we need a reason to celebrate. We had had so much, we had had so much. We had had Solhan where a lot of people were killed. We had Inata where a lot of people were killed, and quickly after that we had. Uh, Lajioro, who was the figure of the popular resistance against um, the insurgencies, he was killed. And we, we, we were looking for a reason to celebrate. We're looking for a reason to bring back some sort of a, some sort of a joy. Mm-hmm. And uh, the stallion will do good to this new regime in bringing back uh, the Afghan uh, cup here. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wish I wish the Stallions all the best. Uh, from the start of the tournament, my money was on the lines of Taranga. We now face the yeah. Stallions head to head. And I'm feeling a little bit bad about supporting Senegal now because I think it would be a wonderful thing for, for Burkina Bears to have a little a little boost of, of joy, just given, as you've said, how much hardship has been faced by the country. And I do hope that if, if it happens, that it's not going to be something that that papers over the, the contradictions. I think we, we, we know what needs to be done in, in Burkina Faso, and I, I hope that it, that it can be done and we'll, we'll keep watching what unfolds and, and hoping for the best. Uh, Dr. Widraugo, thank you so much for, for coming onto the program and for helping us make sense of this. And I think in, a, in an important way, going beneath a lot of the headlines because I've been frustrated personally by a lot of surface level reporting. So it's been great to, to just get a, a comprehensive sense of, of everything that's been going on. And, uh, and it's hard to do as things are happening live. So I appreciate you coming on and, and doing it anyway. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners for, for tuning in. We've just been having a conversation with Dr. Lasan Widraugo, a reminder of who he is. He holds a PhD in Media Arts and Studies, as well as a Master's of International Studies from Ohio University. He's an analyst of political governance, media, and conflict in Sahelian West Africa, and is a Fulbright alumni and and 2020 AIAC inaugural fellow. He currently works as an adjunct lecturer at Université Joseph Kizerbo in Burkina Faso, Nuwagodugu. And he has been talking to us about the coup that recently happened. So thanks again to Dr. Widraugo. Thank you to you, our listeners. A reminder to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Give us feedback. If it's good, we'll be glad for it. If it's bad, we'll take it, we'll learn from it, and we'll do better by you. As well as follow Africa as a country on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. And most importantly, check out africasacountry.com for more writing on contemporary politics and culture on the African continent from a left-wing perspective. My name is William Shockey, and I'll catch you again next week. Mm-hmm.